You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 83 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. In this show, we're going to talk about Union and Confederate diplomacy. In 1861, at the outbreak of the Civil War, both North and South were very aware that the attitude and behavior of the major nations of Europe, particularly Britain and France, could well play a significant role in determining the outcome of the American conflict. And so the goal of Confederate foreign policy with regard to Britain and France was to gain financial aid, mediation, formal recognition, and possibly armed intervention. Southern leaders, knowing that back in the 18th century, the alliance with France had assured American victory in the Revolutionary War, hoped that now, in the 19th century, comparable European support would help the Confederacy in its war against the Union. And then the goal of the Lincoln administration's foreign policy was, for the most part, to maintain friendly relations with the European powers and definitely to block Confederate efforts to win support from Britain and France. At the beginning of the Civil War, when European reaction to the conflict was still evolving, the Union's cause was as often hindered as it was helped by the clumsy, insulting, aggressive diplomacy of Secretary of State William H. Seward. But, fortunately for the North, the Confederates proved to be Seward's equals when it came to blundering, ham-handed foreign policy. And it's not giving away any spoilers to let slip here that, in the end, despite the often amateurish, frequently bumbling diplomacy of both the Union and the Confederacy, what finally kept the Europeans out of the Civil War was the British ultimately realizing that it was in their own best interest to stay out of the American conflict and avoid war with the North. So, when all was said and done, what was the effect of British and French non-intervention? Well, as Howard Jones points out in his book, Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations, quote, The Confederacy's failure to win recognition did not, by itself, determine the victor in the war, but its inability to gain acknowledgement as a nation certainly contributed to its defeat, end quote. No history of the Civil War would be complete without an exploration of its international dimensions. And so several times during the course of the story of the war, like with this episode, we'll look at the threat of intervention by England and France. But really, it's beyond the scope of what Rich and I have planned for the podcast to do more than dip our toes into this particular subject a couple of times. 
So we want to encourage y'all to follow up on our book recommendations. If you yourself want to more thoroughly explore the topic of Union and Confederate foreign relations. Early on in the Civil War, the Lincoln administration's relations with Europe, especially Britain, were hurt more than they were helped by Secretary of State William H. Seward. As the war progressed, Seward would, more or less, settle down, find his footing, and mature in his role as Secretary of State. But especially in 1861, in the early months of the conflict, Seward committed blunders that indicated he was, at least initially, in way over his head with regard to dealing diplomatically with the major European powers. As y'all know, Seward had been a major player in the Republican Party for some time, and in fact had been considered the front-runner to be the Republicans' 1860 presidential candidate until Abraham Lincoln came out of the wings to capture the nomination at the party's Chicago convention. After he won the election, but before his inauguration, Lincoln had needed to placate his party's major also-rans, which is why he gave treasury to Sam and Chase and state to Seward. It's important to understand that Lincoln offered the State Department to Seward not because the powerful New Yorker had any particular expertise in foreign relations, but rather as a sop to Seward's vanity and to cement the unity of the Republican Party. That Seward, at first, was stumbling around in the dark and had little conception of what he was doing can be seen in an April 1st memorandum that he presented to the president in which he seriously urged Lincoln to provoke war with France and Spain over affairs in the Caribbean as a way of solving the secession crisis by reunifying the nation in the face of a foreign threat. In other words, Seward essentially thought it was a brilliant idea to pick a fight with a European power because he anticipated that such a war would reunite North and South against a common foe. Well, when word of the Secretary of State's harebrained scheme leaked out, neither France nor Spain, needless to say, were thrilled. But Lincoln had wisely already decided to ignore Seward's proposal. However, the President did take the opportunity to make it clear to his Secretary of State that whatever course was decided upon with regard to secession or foreign policy, he, Lincoln, would be responsible for initiating it, not Seward. That scolding settled Seward down a bit. Although he would still display a troubling tendency to compose belligerent dispatches and fire them off to American diplomats to present to other governments. The worst example of this was Seward's response to Britain's proclamation of neutrality. Y'all will recall how just five days after the surrender of Fort Sumter in April 1861, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a blockade of all Confederate ports. Well, the president's move was a military decision, but it actually immediately had an impact on both the Union's and the Confederacy's foreign diplomacy. That's because on the international scene, the operation of a blockade was a highly technical and tricky affair, regulated by an international treaty, the Declaration of Paris. Basically, a blockade was only instituted against a hostile foreign nation. The alternative to blockade, in the case of an internal insurrection or rebellion, was a declaration of closure of ports, 
since any sovereign nation has the right to close its own ports to foreign shipping. The president ran into di- diplomatic problems because, as Alan Gelso explains in his book Fateful Lightning, A New History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, quote, Lincoln carefully avoided any use of terms suggesting the Confederacy was a legitimate sovereign nation. Never would he use the term Confederate states, and he would describe them only as a combination that federal authority found too powerful to suppress by normal police action. He would act by blockade as though the Confederacy were a sovereign nation, but he would talk insurrection as if the Confederacy didn't exist. In the eyes of the European powers, however, a blockade was a blockade, and in that case, other nations had one of three options. End quote. So, before we give you those three options, it's important to hit the pause button and just make clear that, in reality, Lincoln's decision to blockade the Confederacy left him with the thorny problem of defining and imposing a blockade upon an insurrection which was a contradiction in terms of the international rules governing such things. All right. So with regard to Lincoln's blockade, if it looked like a duck, swam like a duck, and quacked like a duck, then the Europeans were going to act as if it were a duck. In other words, they, particularly Britain, were going to act as if it were indeed a blockade. And according to international law, that gave them three options. Option number one. They could go along with Lincoln's story that the Confederacy was only an insurrection, and they could forbid their own shipping to put into rebel-held ports. Option number two, they could agree that the Confederacy wasn't exactly a sovereign nation, but they could point out that it was a large-scale, ongoing concern with a functioning government of its own, and was in fact conducting what amounted to a civil war. Under those circumstances, a European nation might declare its neutrality and concede belligerent rights to the Confederates. Conceding belligerent rights to the Confederates acknowledged that the conflict had moved from the realm of a mere uprising to a full-scale war to be conducted by the international rules for war. This would allow Confederate agents, emissaries, and suppliers to operate in foreign countries with certain specific limitations. Or, option number three, they could go all in and grant formal diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy. Recognition might then trigger a Confederate appeal as one nation to other nations for international mediation or for foreign intervention in the conflict. Since the blockade would definitely have a real negative impact on their shipping and trade, the British weren't going to go with option number one. But since they didn't want to antagonize the United States, they also weren't going to choose option number three. So the British chose to steer a middle course, availing themselves of option number two. As Alan Gelzo explains, quote, The neutrality-slash-belligerent rights status was, in fact, what the United States itself had practiced in the 1820s, by conceding belligerent rights to Spain's rebellious colonies in South America, and the British took swift advantage of this fact in May 1861, when the Foreign Office simultaneously proclaimed its neutrality in the American conflict, but also extended belligerent rights to the Confederacy, even before the new American minister to Great Britain, Charles Francis Adams, 
had arrived to take up his duties. When he arrived, Adams protested this concession to the British Foreign Secretary, the crusty and dismissive Lord John Russell, but Russell had only to point out that this was the price the Americans were going to have to pay if they wanted to impose a blockade. It was your own government which, in assuming the belligerent rights of blockade, recognized the southern states as belligerents, Russell later explained. In fact, the United States could lawfully interrupt the trade of neutrals with the southern states upon one ground only, namely that the southern states were carrying on war against the government of the United States, in other words, that they were belligerents. End quote. Although Britain's decision was eminently reasonable, and was, in fact, based upon the logic of the Lincoln administration's own actions, the president still wasn't at all happy with the British. But Seward, Seward really flipped out. On May 21st, a week after Britain's recognition of Confederate belligerency, Seward's antagonistic response to the British decision went out to Charles Francis Adams in London. Seward's dispatch seemed to treat the Foreign Office's proclamation of neutrality as an outright provocation, as an announcement that the British intended to actually intervene in the blockade or officially take a side in the American conflict. Seward, running with that assumption, actually threatened the British with war. Fortunately, Seward's reckless bluster was diffused by the simple fact that Charles Francis Adams took it upon himself to delete the most provocative parts of Seward's message before he read it to Lord John Russell. But despite Adams' editing, the overall tone of Seward's note still communicated nothing but hostility, and so in the end, all it did was create tension and friction where none need have existed. Washington and London had enjoyed a cooperative, if cautious, relationship for quite some time before the Civil War, and London indicated their only desire at the start of the Civil War was the continuation of those peaceful relations. Yet Seward seemed to be going out of his way to antagonize the British. Really, Seward may have been a savvy, mostly successful player in domestic politics, but he lacked the polish and breadth needed for effective diplomatic work especially at such a sensitive moment in time. His blustering and bullying, at least early in the war, damaged the Union's cause. But, fortunately for the Union, as we already mentioned at the top of the show, the Confederates proved to be Seward's equals when it came to blundering ham-handed foreign policy and diplomacy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. In Amanda Foreman's lengthy tome, A World on Fire, Britain's Crucial Role in the American Civil War, there's an anecdote from April 1861 that pretty much perfectly illustrates the thinking behind Confederate foreign policy early in the war. Here we find Robert Bunch, the British consul in Charleston, South Carolina, and William Howard Russell, the famous war reporter for The Times. And here's how Foreman relates the incident in A World on Fire. Robert Bunch had been the consul in Charleston since 1853 and was regarded by many as a permanent fixture in Southern society. He gave a dinner for Russell on April 18th that was singular in the brutal frankness with which the guests predicted Britain's swift humiliation by the South if she did not immediately recognize the Confederate government. Only the day before, Virginia had provisionally voted to join the Confederacy, raising the number of seceded states from seven to eight. Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee looked certain to follow. Mr. Bunch's southern guests were exultant. It was scarcely agreeable to my host or myself, wrote Russell, to be told that England owed allegiance to the Cotton Kingdom. Why, sir, sneered one of the guests, we have only to shut off your supply of cotton for a few weeks, and we can create a revolution in Great Britain. There are four millions of your people depending on us for their bread. No, sir, we know that England must recognize us. Russell and Bunch maintained a polite silence as all the southern guests present voiced their agreement. Such was the thinking behind the Confederacy's so-called King Cotton Diplomacy. You see, at the start of the Civil War, Jefferson Davis and most Confederate leaders believed that because of Europe's dependence on southern cotton, Britain and France would be compelled to come hat in hand to the Confederacy and offer their assistance in the South's struggle for independence. At the root of King Cotton diplomacy was the widely held Southern belief that the textile mills and the prosperity of Britain and France so much required Southern cotton that the European powers must come to the rescue of the Confederacy if the Union's blockade endangered the flow of cotton across the Atlantic. In the early days of the war, when the Union's blockade was still not very effective, the Confederacy could have exported the 1860 cotton crop, and probably much of that of 1861 as well, with only moderate risk, and from those shipments build up a substantial line of credit in Europe that could have been applied to the purchase of vital war supplies. But instead of doing that, Southerners thinking that an abrupt and complete stoppage in the flow of cotton to Europe's mills 
would be the best way to shock the British and French into intervention, southern planters and merchants held on to their cotton. Determined to impose their will on foreign governments through King Cotton, southern planters and merchants held on to their crop in 1861, declining to send it to market and creating what amounted to a Confederacy-wide cotton embargo. This citizen-imposed embargo was never official Confederate government policy, but nevertheless it did drastically diminish the amount of cotton that left the South during 1861. You know, it's kind of ironic that the South didn't hesitate to cry foul with regard to coercion when they thought they were on the receiving end, but then they turned around and used the threat of a cotton embargo to try to coerce Britain and France into granting the Confederacy formal diplomatic recognition and military aid. As James McPherson explains in his book, Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, Cotton was the principal weapon of Southern foreign policy. Britain imported three-quarters of its cotton from the American South. The textile industry dominated the British economy. The inevitability of British intervention to obtain cotton became an article of faith in the South during 1861. A Charleston merchant told the London Times correspondent a few days after the surrender of Fort Sumter that if those miserable Yankees try to blockade us and keep you from our cotton, he said, you'll just send their ships to the bottom and acknowledge us. That will be before autumn, I think. In July 1861, Vice President Alexander Stevens expressed certainty that in some way or other the blockade will be raised or there will be revolution in Europe. Our cotton is the tremendous lever by which we can work our destiny, end quote. But, as Russell Wigley points out in his book, A Great Civil War, A Military and Political History, 1861 to 1865, quote, Unfortunately for King Cotton diplomacy, in 1861, the British and French factories held enough of a surplus of raw cotton from earlier years that they could afford to await further developments, instead of pressing their governments toward a hasty intervention in the American troubles. Such developments might include expansion of Egyptian and Indian cotton crops to relieve an embarrassing dependence on the American South and its slavery system. End quote. So all of that is to draw y'all's attention to a couple of things. First, that at the start of the war, the South decided to make cotton its principal instrument or weapon of foreign policy, especially with regard to Britain. And although the Confederate government never officially sanctioned the cotton embargo, Southern public opinion and faith in King Cotton was so powerful that the embargo virtually enforced itself. But here's the other thing we wanted to be sure to point out. Southern expectations of foreign intervention to break the blockade didn't take into account that at the start of the Civil War, British warehouses already contained a surplus of cotton thanks to the huge exports of 1857 through 1860. In fact, stocks of raw cotton in Britain and France in December 1861 were still higher than any previous December. The cotton shortage that the South was counting on really didn't start to happen until mid-1862, and by then, not only had the Union's blockade started to tighten and become more effective, but cotton acreage in Egypt and India had already been increased. So by then, by mid-1862, 
Not only couldn't the South ship large amounts of cotton through the blockade, but Europe had already taken steps to find other sources of cotton. And then this is probably a good point to mention that during the American conflict, the British found that they needed something else even more desperately than cotton, and that was wheat. A failure in England's wheat crop in 1861 and 1862 meant the English were buying large amounts of wheat from the United States. So because of that crop failure, the English needed the North's wheat more than the South's cotton. And then alongside the miscarriage of King Cotton diplomacy, the Confederacy simply failed to appreciate the British government's desire early in the Civil War to avoid involvement in the American conflict. At the start of the conflict, Britain's leaders were not only put off by Southern arrogance, but they wisely recognized that any action against the Union's blockade and subsequent war with the United States would be incredibly damaging overall to British interest, much more damaging than the temporary loss of Southern cotton, which, after all, could be made up from other sources, such as Egypt and India. And yet another miscalculation on the Confederacy's part, and here really the blame lies solely with Jefferson Davis, but this blunder was in the makeup of the three-man commission the Confederate State Department sent to Europe to secure diplomatic recognition for the South's quest for nationhood. In March 1861, the Confederacy sent William Yancey of Alabama, Judge Pierre Roast of Louisiana, and A. Dudley Mann of Georgia on a preliminary visit to the major European capitals. Yancey was at the very least a curious choice to send to London, since, as William C. Davis points out in his book, Look Away, A History of the Confederate States of America, the choice of Yancey either spoke to how little the Confederate president expected of the diplomatic mission, or to Davis's woeful judgment in choosing recipients of responsibility. Because when the Confederacy wanted to send the message that they were not radicals or revolutionaries, Jefferson Davis nevertheless selected one of the South's most radical revolutionaries to head that first diplomatic mission to Europe. You see, Yancey had not only been one of the South's most vocal and notorious fire-eaters, but he was an unabashed proponent of reopening the Atlantic slave trade, a position which was almost guaranteed to ensure that he wouldn't receive a warm welcome in most quarters in resolutely anti-slavery Britain. And then Roast of Louisiana, who was to go to Paris, had no qualifications whatsoever except a French lineage and the ability to speak French. Mann actually did have some diplomatic experience, but like the other two Confederate emissaries, he was hampered by the fact that Jefferson Davis had given them no power to negotiate and conclude treaties or trade agreements, and more importantly, with regard to their reception in foreign capitals, the three men were handicapped by the fact that they had no formal diplomatic standing, since they came from a government that had not received formal recognition on the international scene. The three men selected to be the Confederacy's first diplomats could really do little except present the South's case for independence and recognition and protest the Union's blockade. But in Europe, no one would receive these gentlemen officially, and their informal overtures to foreign leaders failed to accomplish anything either. 
In the end, about all they achieved was to stir up an already excitable Secretary of State William Seward and convince the British that at this stage in the Civil War, it was best to stay out of the American conflict. You see, in early May 1861, Lord Russell, Britain's foreign secretary, did, quite unofficially, meet with the Confederate emissaries. But when Seward heard about it, he was angry that the Southerners had been received even unofficially, and he drafted a letter threatening to sever diplomatic relations with the court of St. James if it happened again. Abraham Lincoln toned down the letter, and in London, Charles Francis Adams tactfully relayed the message in his own words, but he still communicated that any further meetings with the Confederates would be looked upon by the United States as a sign of hostility. After that, Lord Russell refused to meet with the Southerners again, and soon he announced a hands-off policy, saying, quote, We have not been involved in any way in the American contest, and for God's sake, let us, if possible, keep out of it. End quote. With his original emissaries making no headway, in the fall of 1861, Jefferson Davis decided to replace them with two men he intended to be the regular Confederate ministers to Britain and France. The men, both former U.S. Senators, were James Mason of Virginia and John Slidell of Louisiana. Mason, who was to go to London, was a wealthy planter, but he was best known to the anti-slavery British as the author of the infamous Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Slidell, who was to go to Paris, was a native New Yorker who had migrated to Louisiana, married into the local Creole gentry, learned to speak passable French, and become a powerful figure in Democratic Party politics. Ironically, Mason and Slidell came nearest to accomplishing their mission before they ever reached Europe. That was because, having made their way to Cuba, they took passage from there on the British mail packet Trent, which was then intercepted by a U.S. warship. The resulting incident, the so-called Trent Affair, took, or seemed to take, the United States and Britain right up to the brink of war. But we want to give the Trent Affair its own episode, so you guys will have to wait till next week for the continuation of this story. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Blue and Gray Diplomacy, A History of Union and Confederate Foreign Relations by Howard Jones. Like we said at the top of the episode, if you guys want to dive deeper into an examination of Union and Confederate foreign relations during the Civil War, we'll point you in the direction of our book recommendations on the subject, the first of which is Howard Jones' work, which shows how the conflict between North and South had consequences far beyond America. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also go to the website to make a donation to help support the podcast, which is what Kevin K. from Kentucky did. So thanks, Kevin. And a big thanks also to Spiritwood Music for permission to use their lovely song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode of the podcast. So it looks like that's it for this show. Next week, we'll look at the Trent Affair, and that will bring us to the end of the first year of the war. 
And so after the next show, we'll have that big year in review episode for you guys when Tracy and I will go back and month by month look at what all happened in 1861. But thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.